Full disclosure, this episode of Community Pulse is not meant to be taken as legal advice. We are sharing our opinions and thoughts. If you have specific questions about your content, we recommend contacting a legal professional. You're listening to The Community Pulse, a podcast about developer relations, community management, and all things tech advocacy. Let's see what our hosts are chatting about this episode. Hey, everybody. When we create content, the ideas and concepts typically come from ourselves or our community members. But when we work for larger organizations, things get complicated. Some of us create content as part of our day-to-day role. Some of us create content outside of work hours. Now that we as DevRel professionals produce even more online content, content to connect with our community, there's some ambiguity about the ownership of this content. To take a look at some of these questions, we've invited a couple of guests familiar with this space. Amara Graham, Head of Developer Experience at Kamunda, and Henry Teagarden, Esquire from Teagarden Law. Amara, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, thank you. Um, so as you said, I'm the Head of Developer Experience at Kamunda, um, but I've worked a number of different DevRel roles for a number of different companies. Um, I write content on DevRel, developer experience, and then, of course, occasionally things about my employer and the, the related tech stack. Awesome. And Henry? Um, I'm an attorney in Rochester, New York. I specialize in branding, licensing, and uh, um, intellectual property law. Um, And I also teach uh, as part of the American University Hospitality and Tourism Law Program. Awesome. And let me bring in uh, my other hosts, uh, Wesley and SJ. Wesley, why don't you get us started with some questions? Great. Uh, Amara, you mentioned that you create content for your employer, but what content do you create on your own? And did you have a conversation about that with your employer about who owns that content? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Um, So yes, I create content on my own. I have a a personal blog that's currently out on on Dev.2 where I write things mostly related to, to developer relations, developer experience, um, even though I hate the term thought leadership, it's really thought leadership around uh, those spaces. Um, but I also write content for for my employer. So occasionally things that will end up um, hosted on the employer's blog. Um, I am the, the DRI or the directly responsible individual for documentation. So, so we write official docs for our, our products. Um, a number of different pieces of content in different places. And it depends on the employer too. So previous employers, I've also um, created and hosted things like meetups and events. Um, those previous employers have said, you know, hey, the, the meetups and things that you create on our time are ours. So I have relinquished those to those respective employers. Um, but as far as written content is concerned, I try to negotiate between, you know, what content appears on my personal blog, what can be syndicated on the company blog, um, and then, of course, what is hosted or or lives exclusively on the, the company blog as well. I'm curious, actually, just as a follow-up to that, um, uh, for you, Henry, 
um, when you're sort of consulting with companies, do you have any specific recommendations about, you know, the ownership or the authorship of content that happens with, by employees who um, are working for the company, but may or may not may or may not be representing that company in all spaces? Um, how do you sort of navigate that and what recommendations do you provide from a legal perspective? Well, I think the big thing that's changed with that, and you know, in more recent years is the prevalence of work from home. I mean, I think most of us were, you know, maybe starting off, you did your job on the, you know, computer at work and came home and and there was that clear distinction. But now, um, you know, employees are taking, take, you know, have their laptops at home or, you know, maybe doing everything from a company laptop. So there's not that clear distinction anymore. It's very easy to be like, okay, I'm working on this project now for my employer. Eh, I really don't want to go in the other room and get my laptop. I'm just going to do a little bit of it right now. And so that, that blur can happen a lot faster. Um, I think the big thing for employers is talking about it. I mean, there's so many, so many times you see assumptions made and it doesn't have to be a 50 page, you know, manual about, you know, if you do this, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to own it. It just has to be, what are, what are the expectations? And I, I think that's what the employee is looking for too. Just let me know what, what your expectations are of, of who's going to own what. So I can, so I can go along with that. You know, do you need me to be off your server completely if I'm doing anything on my own? Are you claiming, you know, are you claiming, um, you know, my work product? If I use a piece of something I've created on my own at work, are you claiming a piece of that? And so I think the biggest, the, the place it becomes an issue is where there's been no conversation and that, um, you know, there's just a misunderstanding. Everything starts off with, well, I, I thought we were, you know, we were cool with that, that they knew what I was doing and, and um, they were comfortable that I was doing this work on the side or the company's thinking, well, I thought it was understood that like, if you were doing this on our computer, we were going to own it. And there's just that gap in between everyone's understanding that kicks off the, that kicks off the problem. That's really interesting. I don't know, Amara, have you ever had any sort of like incidents in your experience of, of, you know, the ownership of the content coming into question? No incidents, thankfully. Um, I think part of it helped that coming right out of, of college and into my first industry job, I joined a, a large company um, where the, the general rule of thumb and now kind of my working assumption is if I make it on company equipment, regardless of whether it's on company time, it's company owned. Um, and I know that a lot of larger employers will, will maybe define that slightly differently, but to the point that Henry made, it needs to be part of the conversation. So now that I have joined other companies, big and small, I always go into it and ask, you know, what, what is expected of me on company time, off company time, on company equipment, off company equipment, um, because it's, it's an important, um, it's an important conversation to have. The other thing I wanted to mention too, which Henry didn't bring up is again, for some of the larger companies, this may also include the skills that you use, like that you're employed to, to, to do or execute or the ones that you've gained. So if you've gone to um, company sponsored training and gained a new skill, um, that's also potentially company owned. So for me, previously, when I wanted to make that move from enterprise IT into developer relations, 
one of the stipulations was I was not allowed to talk about the technologies that I used in my day job, um, which for me, I was writing JavaScript, I was using open source, but we were not allowed to contribute back. We were not allowed to talk about things because we might cause security issues um, was the, the statement that was, was provided to me. Um, so for me, I wrote JavaScript in my day job. So that meant that anything JavaScript related was potentially the, the company's, was potentially theirs. Um, and then subject to things like, you know, if you talk about it, are you using it at work? And if you're using it at work, is that a security issue? Um, I, I like to bring that up because again, to Henry's point, it needs to be part of a conversation. So when you're interviewing with a company or you're meeting with your manager, you should definitely be sure to, to disclose what you're doing or your intention um, rather than just, you know, do it and then hope you can ask for forgiveness because particularly in this space, uh, it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, you bring, you bring up a good point because uh, one, of the, one of the things I, th I, I think of is, you know, like going to the local meetup or going to a conference and presenting a talk that has nothing to do with the technology you're building or the application you're building or whatever it is that you're doing. But, you know, maybe in an ancillary way it does. You know, and I think that your example is like you were coding JavaScript every day, but you couldn't go out and do a talk about JavaScript, which seems that seems really restrictive because your company doesn't own JavaScript. You know what I mean? Um, but one of, the, one of the things that kind of stimulated this whole conversation was this idea that, you know, some of us are changing jobs and doing things like that. And like I've, so I've written a bunch of written talks that I plan to give, but I'm about to change companies. Now, some of those talks were written before I worked for that company. Another couple of talks happened while I was working at that company. However, the talks and the content aren't specific to the company. Do they own that content? It's art now it's already been performed and we're going to get into that a little bit later, but when I write a talk as PJ Haggerty, speaker at large, um, do I own that content because I've created it, even if it's for work purposes, specifically because I'm in a DevRel role? And the tough, you know, the tough thing with that is even just documenting that. You know, you you say I wrote this beforehand. Um, uh, we think in a more formal sense with like a patent or something, you'd be keeping a lab notebook of you know here's when I did X when, but if you're, you know, especially if, if, if things became acrimonious with an employer and they said, well, we don't know when you wrote that. We think you wrote that at work. Um, it's worth, and you don't, you know, you don't have to keep the lab notebook, but when you do create something that you think you might want to carry with you, or you might want to, uh, um, you know, use out for a talk to uh, actually make, you know, make a note and say, I wrote this, you know, date that, they, that when you wrote it, you know, you you probably have something in the file in your computer, you know, that says when you wrote it, you know, where, what machine it was written on. But those those kind of records, those kind of records can be helpful. I'm actually wondering, Henry, because I know that one of the things that some speakers do is the first time they do a talk, they'll put it on like uh, slider.io or something like that, where it's specifically date stamped. And it reminds me a little bit of the old... Uh, uh, side sidestep copyright from the from my musician days where you'd send a tape yeah. to yourself and never open it and yes the government has seen it therefore it's copyright can we actually say that like hey i've written this talk and i presented this talk and i now put it up and it's in the internet I'm not even going to get into the blockchain you guys i swear to god i'm not going to the blockchain <laughs> but like it's on the internet i can prove that that is date stamped that i presented this and it was put up at this time would that 
legal argument? Would that be even a standing legal argument if, if things weren't to get acrimonious, as you said? Um, it would help. Um, I mean, you can also do, you know, something more formal and, and on your, you know, where your talk is posted, either if it's posted in audio, you know, say it, or if it's, you know, you've got notes posted or, or slides from the presentation, put on it, you know, copyright PJ Haggerty and, and affirmatively claim it so that at least the claim is there um, from the outset. I was uh, talking about that, the time and date and machine and where it's done. A, a lot of, like in this profession anyway, uh, a lot of people are salary. So there might be a little squishy about when you're working, when you're not. Not if you go to a business trip and it's like a four-day business trip and you take a few hours to do sightseeing, are you doing that on company time or doing that on your time? There, So it's a little kind of ambiguous when your time starts and the company time ends. Uh, how would you, do you have any like tips of, of what you use to, 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 to define those edges? Uh, I'll, I would love to hear your answer first, Henry, and then Amara second. Well, I think it goes back to what Amara was, was alluding to. You also have to understand what is, what is your employer particularly touchy about? What do they consider proprietary? Um, you know, what are, there may be things, you know, you're working with every day that, you know, okay. If I get anywhere near this, they're going to be itchy about it. If you know, so I'm going to be careful with that right off, right off the bat. There's a proprietary process here we use to do X. If I, if I, you know, try and you know change that up a little bit in a cute way and reuse it, I know we're gonna we're gonna have issues. So I think it's the sensitivity first of all to where where your red flags are with your employer, what they're going to most likely to claim. And then I think um, it is creating some kind of some kind of um, you know firewall. They're going on a machine you own is is you know it sounds crude and and uh, and uh, um, you know a, 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 a kind of a weird delineation, but it makes a big difference. You know, walking in the other room to get your own laptop if you're salaried and you're at home in the evening and you know you're working on something that makes a big difference. Um, uh, and putting that initial putting that initial claim on it, and and recognizing right off the bat when you when you have something, um, if it's something you want to monetize, recognizing that pretty far off the bat. If it's something you want to claim, recognizing that pretty far off the bat. And before you go much further, you know, you know that thing you clicked through with your employer that was terms of you know that was kind of the company code of conduct or or whatever. Yeah, you, know, you know, download that thing and see what it says. You know, we, you know, everyone who's worked at a corporation has done that. Been like, you know what? There, this is the fifth notice that I have to sign this by the end of the day, or or I'm going to get, you know, auto ejected out of my seat or something. I'm gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and click through. But there is stuff there that we would traditionally have thought of in an employment contract. But there's stuff in there where there, you know, could be asserting ownership over all sorts of things. You know, even if you're on your own machine. But working on a you know an adjacent topic to what you're doing work at work, so you you have to be careful about that too. You might you know all these auto clicks you may have been doing over the years, you might have been agreeing to stuff that you didn't didn't actually realize. Henry's making me laugh. Sorry, um, did, did I was someone speaking? Sorry about that. Oh, sorry. Yes, it was Mars. Your turn. I'm so sorry. Please. <laughs> Edit that part out. Thank you. 
So Henry, you're, you're making me laugh because um, when I worked for my, my two bigger companies, which I won't name, you can find them on the internet. It, I'm not going to say anything like super scathing, but um, they were very patent hungry companies. And I think that that's an important distinction too. Um, and in terms of patents, which I know you, you had mentioned, um, patent hungry companies kind of get that first right of refusal to the, the ideas that you generate there. And it's written into employee contracts, but if you click through them, you might not fully understand um, so I, I distinctly remember having a conversation with um, some of my friends. We all have engineering backgrounds. We are all, you know, paid to, to be creative in the engineering space. And you tend to generate ideas that may be patentable. Um, the, the joke became if you wanted to have like a, a side hustle or you wanted to do something in your free time, you should do something so dramatically different that your employer wouldn't be interested in having that idea as theirs or wouldn't be interested in as claiming that idea as theirs. That's kind of part of the reason why I have taken an approach to write more around like the thought leadership space for DevRel and developer experience. And now that I'm a manager, things about, you know, the hiring pipeline, because those are, are interesting to my employers, past, present, and future, but they don't they don't claim any of those ideas and I don't think they would be interested in them. But for my first employer, if I wanted to start talking about, you know, the chip making process and the chips that are going into computers and cars and things, that's much more interesting for, for that company. And that's much more interesting too, in particular for a, a patent perspective. So I used to get really confused about why people would, you know, have these radically different side hustles or side projects in their day jobs. But now it makes sense. Like if you decide you want to open up a bar and you're a full-time software engineer, your employer's not going to claim that unless you're doing something like really crazy and maybe like super automated and like really techie. Um, but your employer's not going to be like, no, you have to, you have to pay us or you have to like give us the profits for that bar. They don't care. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. Like this is actually segues really nicely into um, the question that I kind of wanted to bring up in, in the last few minutes before we wrap up and move on to checkouts. Um, indeed, we are, you know, a big part of our job is creating content. Um, and when it comes to what we're doing, you know, from a personal basis, like you said, Amara, you know, it's, from a legal perspective, probably a little bit easier to um, stick to topics that are either kind of like thought leadership, a more you know industry neutral, or completely far off from um, the actual like um, meat and potatoes of the product of the company we work for. But what what about um, how we approach encouraging developers that we work with to build um, you know in a hackathon setting and you know like I guess more virtual hackathons these days there are so many legal questions and 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 bringing up that clarity for the developers that we work with with around um, how they can navigate things like hackathons contests any kind of incentive to build um, you know how do we approach that as as devrel folks to make sure that we're setting these developers up for success and they're clear on, you know, who owns what at the end of that process. I guess let me take a, a stab at, at answering that first. Um, so I was definitely one of those people who would just like click, click, click. Yeah, I get it. I'm employed. I got to follow the rules. Cool. 
I guess I've gotten older and wiser and now I actually read through those contracts, <laughs> which just absolutely cracked me up. Um, it's, it's funny how that happens. Uh, so now that I've read through them, I encourage not only my friends, my coworkers, but other people to, to revisit those contracts or to, to pay really close attention to them. Um, at my, my current company at Comunda, we do have an, an open source mentality and we, we support open source. So our employee contracts are written in such a way that we, we understand that there's going to be time that people may be contributing to open source projects. They may be related to their day job. They may be related to the, the projects that they're working on, or they may be totally different, but still in the open source space, still in the software space. So not as controlling as like you do JavaScript in your day job, no, no JavaScript for you ever. Um, so I think that that's really important to understand those, those contracts and understand what you signed, but then to also make sure that people who are coming into the company or who are joining a new company are as upfront with their employer as possible. So if you've generated an idea previously in a hackathon that you thought would be like a really cool side hustle or you wanted to grow it into a project, making sure that people understand that you are coming with that, those ideas, coming with that mentality will make it that much easier down the line when you say like, actually, I'm going to exit this company and take the idea that I made during that hackathon at that company or that that company sponsored and I want to make it profitable and do something like super exciting with it. The sooner you have those conversations, the better. And if they happen at day zero or even like day negative one, that's going to set you up for success in the long run. Absolutely. Great. I think TJ, you wanted to jump in about uh, asking some questions around, you know, how we can segue that into conference stuff. Yeah, I think that what we've what we talked about thus far is like very concrete and, and easy to follow because it's like, you know, does the company own stuff that I'm making for the company, cup that I'm making? But then, you know, like when, especially when it comes to presentations and even with blog posts and some other content, uh, it's kind of put out there and then it's in the hands of someone else. So let's say, for example, and this is a very real example, I speak at a conference. Uh, my picture is taken by a company that takes pictures. Maybe their name's Getty Images. Um, who controls that photo? Who controls the video of the talk that I gave? Who actually has dominion over that content? Can I go to Getty Images and say, hey, please stop telling people they have to spend $700 to get a picture of me? I mean, it is a great picture. I'm not going to lie. It's a really good picture. I really like it. Um, but, you know, like who who literally control who owns that picture? Because it's me. But also I was speaking at a conference, so they kind of may have some dominion over that. But also Getty Images took the picture. Who owns the video of me give, giving that talk? Who, like, where does that all end up? And I, I don't know that there's an answer to this question, but I kind of want to toss it to Henry to kind of get his background and see what might be the case. And I think if you're asking that question after the conference, the conference sort of dropped the ball on uh, on setting those expectations and, and, and uh, uh, you know, letting you know what, who was going to be there taking pictures, you know, what was going to be recorded, what was, you know, what was, what did they want to do with it in the future? Um, if a con if you're going to a conference and that's not in the, you know, you've been invited to speak and that's not in the package of, of materials or, you know, you haven't been asked to sign a release for your picture, it, you know, if it's a concern, raise, raise the issue. It should be, you know, that should be something way on the upfront because you do have, you know, whether you're in a, you know, 
say it's a say it's at a company's uh, boardroom. It's a it's a different situation where the, being at a hotel or being at a you know like a county owned uh, county owned facility. What you know what rights you could potentially have in in your own image. But if it's something, it's not it's never something that should be coming up after the fact. It should you shouldn't be surprised by anything of what they're asking for you. And if it, if you didn't sign a release and you didn't do that yet, you absolutely have rights in your you know, image in a bunch of different ways. That's amazing. Um, Amara, do you have any thoughts on that? I feel like that's like a, almost a whole separate podcast topic for me. Um, as a woman in tech, surprise, I'm a woman in tech. I get my picture taken quite frequently at tech conferences mm -hmm. and I watch it end up in PR for that conference for like the rest of time. Um, I don't have a lot of leverage there because I, I either signed something that said that they could use it or I signed something that said they could take pictures. And then it was kind of vague about what they were going to do with those, those pictures. Um, gotten a little bit more aggressive about that recently and, it applies to things like blogs and, and, you know, I, I want my voice represented in a blog. If it's not, or you're going to heavy edit it, take my name off the byline. Um, if I leave a company and I'm, I'm not interested in, you know, having that be part of my brand, take my name off the byline. And usually people are pretty good about that. Um, but yeah, like I said, that's all, that's a beefy topic. <laughs> and the thing Thanks. I'll see, I'm sorry, I was just going to say the thing I'll see companies do or, or organizations do is have the sign at the front of the venue. If you come in here, you're you're consenting to have your picture taken and be recorded. And I just don't like that because I don't think people should be surprised. Everyone should, as I said, there should be expectations going in for exactly the concerns Amara just raised. I totally agree, especially when they're over the bathrooms. I think those are just wrong and should not happen. <laughs> Let's um, see what conferences have we been going to? <laughs> that is also another podcast we might want to yes. address. Uh, yes, it, we, we, we don't want to out them on this podcast, yeah, it, so I'll just I'll skip over that. But okay. thank you all for your really great answers. This is the part of the podcast where we move into what's known as the checkouts, where you get to share a link that's either related to what you do or not. Uh, so um, we try to end on a high note. So uh, Amara, how about you? You you have a checkout for this show? I do. So hopefully we can post a link because it's a, a TikTok link. Because uh, I'll admit, I've been living under a rock for the past like I, two years. Who knows? <laughs> um, but I stumbled on this really cool TikTok of a, uh, a new nurse grad um, who is deaf. And she's talking about her experience as a deaf nurse and the tools that she uses, um, and just for for some very light background, um, one of the the schools that I went to growing up had a deaf and hard of hearing program. Um, so I I love the deaf community. I I wish that I could be involved more at this point in my life. But that was such a cool experience to hear her talk about the different tools and things that that she has. Um, and the, the technology that has evolved over time, like to understand that things like stethoscopes now have Bluetooth enabled technology that just goes straight into a, a hearing aid or a cochlear implant. Like that's, that's wild. Very different than what I do in my day job. <laughs> that's super inspiring. And oh gosh, I mean, when you look at the world through those lens, you kind of see what you didn't see before, which is pretty awesome. So I really appreciate that link. Um, I'm, Gonna go to mine now. Um, mine is uh, a little self-promoting, so I, I apologize. 
Um, but we've we've been kind of like talking about um, just when I say we, I mean the the this, the general discourse about the Great Resignation and people changing jobs, and uh, especially in the DevRel space, uh, um, there are new people who are being minted with their DevRel wings, and then they're out there um, uh, looking for their next gig. Um, and I co-wrote a, po a, a piece um, talking about some warning signs or, or some red flags when you're looking for a role, um, because there are also um, companies who hear this great thing about DevRel and they try to enact it. And sometimes they may not know exactly what that means. Uh, so um, if the uh, more details in the piece, I'll stop talking about it, but um, I, it's something that I've been having thoughts for a long time. And so I'm glad that I was able to get it in writing. Uh, move it over to you, SJ. What are your, cool. your checks? Um, lots of food for thought there that I think additional things we can even add to that conversation after what we talked about today. Even I'm thinking about all the conversations I haven't had when starting a job about, you know, who owns what content. Um, and I was joking, jokingly going to be like, have you guys heard of this uh, new game called Wordle as part of my, uh, my checkout? But I know you all have, so I will spare you that. Um, but let me just say, that's how I get my self-confidence in the morning, based on how quickly I solve the wordle. Um, I also wanted to mention, on in the spirit of the great resignation and the great sort of um, move around of jobs, that um, I figured I'd, I'd use this opportunity to let folks know that I'm back at HubSpot, which is super exciting. And so the, uh, the link I wanted to specifically uh, draw attention to for HubSpot is their really, really in-depth culture code. Um, there's a lot to it, so I won't get into it, but um, as sort of, uh, you know, potentially cheesy as it might be, we have an acronym at HubSpot called HEART. It stands for humble, empathetic, adaptable, remarkable, and transparent. And these are the sort of guiding, um, the guiding sort of values that drive everything we do at the company. And I've seen this kind of thing so many times at companies and honestly, like, the fact that I'm back at HubSpot is a testament to the fact that I can really feel strongly that they they take it very seriously. And I know that other companies out there in looking at, you know, establishing their 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 culture and, you know, treating culture as a product the way HubSpot does. There's just so much rich, richness in that um, that culture code um, initially written and developed, but obviously being optimized all the time by our, by our awesome people team, but originally created by Dharmesh Shah, uh, our CTO. Um, so anyway, I encourage you all to, to check it out. There will be a link uh, to this and everything else that we mentioned in our in our show notes. Congratulations, SJ. Thanks. Um, yeah. And glad that you are back home, I guess. Yeah. Uh, next That's is Henry. Like Henry, <laughs> what is your checkout? I'm going to steer away from any dry legal stuff. And I'll tell you what's intrigued me in the last couple of weeks. And this this probably this probably is more an indicator of how old I am than anything. But Valentine's Day has gotten really complicated at school. Um, uh, uh, the size dimensions on the boxes you have to bring to put the Valentines in and the uh, and the regulations around candy or or this and that. Um, so the plus the plus side is it's gotten way it's gotten way better about making sure it's inclusive, which is thumbs up. But everything else is uh, is uh, a far a far cry from the days when mom or dad would go out to CVS the night before and pick up the the GI Joe Valentines at, at nine o'clock and you'd quickly scrib scribble names down and take them in the next morning. It's it's become a whole uh, it's become a whole process. But maybe I'm just old. You're, come on, you're not, you're not that old. You're not, you're not that old. Um, 
That that you know what I I actually uh, I was recently talking to a friend of mine about that and he, he was like this is a much more complicated process and I was like I'm glad my kids are older and I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> um, but uh, so so my I, you know I guess in the spirit of of both what Wesley and what SJ said I should mention that I am not working at Mattermost anymore. Uh, we still have a relationship, but I've started I've decided to go back full time to Devrelate. So um, if you're looking for a contract, Devrelation Services, Devrelate.io is the place to go. Um, but other than that, uh, the, uh, a thing came up kind of a little bit towards the end of last year, uh, and it was a big deal. I know Jason, who's working production on this episode, isn't participating, but Jason and I discussed this a little bit beforehand. Uh, I was a huge fan of the anime Cowboy Bebop. It was foundational. It's from you know late 90s. First of all, it has the best intro song in the history of intro songs of anything ever. That I will die on that hill. Um but Netflix, as Netflix does, decide they want to do a live action version. And this is something that's been in, in talk since the, the anime finished. Uh, a lot of people felt that the live version wasn't that good. And I'm just saying that I think people should give it a chance. I think it's actually an excellent series. It has been canceled, unfortunately. But that means that you can encapsulate the entire thing in 10 episodes. Um, great characters, great casting. Um, the pacing can be slow at times, but compared to some of the other things that I'm watching these days... It's not that bad. Um, but so Cowboy Bebop, Cowboy Bebop on Netflix, check it out. Give it a chance. I think it deserves a little bit more love than it got initially. Um, with that, I would like to say thank you to Amara. Thank you, Henry. Thank you for joining us and sharing your insights with us. Uh, as always, thank you to my co-hosts, SJ and Wesley. Thank you to Jason, who's been doing all the production work in the background. Uh, I know that we, we kind of talked about this previously, that we kind of adjusted, and I was doing hip-hop quotes earlier. I kind of shifted to punk rock quotes, so it's a little bit different. Feel free to, you know, hit us up on Twitter or send in some emails to uh, info at communitypulse.io. Let us know which you prefer. But for this episode, I felt it was appropriate to uh, quote someone who I wish I wish I could say was a good friend of mine, but unfortunately I missed that boat by about 30 years. Um, but uh, from Joe Strummer of The Clash, something that I think really fits the topic, and that is the quote that the future is unwritten. With that, Thanks for checking out the Community Pulse. Stay, stay, stay safe out there, everybody, and we will see you on the next episode. This has been Community Pulse. Learn more at communitypulse.io and on Twitter at community underscore pulse. Your hosts are Mary Thangball, Mary underscore Grace on Twitter, Jason Hand, Jason Hand on Twitter, PJ Haggerty, Asplenic on Twitter, SJ Morris, Sarah Jane Morris on Twitter, and Wesley Faulkner, Wesley83 on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>